I wasn't by any means a natural. I was not one of those wow hounds born, jaw dropped. I was tough in the husk, went years untouched by rain. Took shelter seriously, even, and often especially, in good weather. My tears like teenagers hiding under the hoods of my eyes. So committed they were to never falling for the joke of astonishment. When I was told there were seven wonders of the world, I trusted the math, believed I'd seen none of them. Of course, beauty hunted me. It hunts everyone. But I outran it, hid in worry, regret, the promise of an afterlife or a week's end. Then one day, in a red velvet theatre in New Orleans, I watched Maya Angelou walk on stage, 17 slow steps to the mic. She took a breath before speaking, and I could hear God being born in that breath. My every pore reached out like a hand, pointing to the first unsinkable lotus in the bayou of the universe. I'd never felt anything like it. Searched the encyclopedia for the feeling's name when I got home. Goosebumps. Afterward, I thought, I can do this. Started training morning to night, crowbar swinging like a pendulum at the wall of my chest. Tore the caution tape off my life and let everything touch it. Alan Iverson on the television in his first season with the Sixers, crossover sharp as a V of sparrows, flying through the paint like Michelangelo's brush. 333 goosebumps. My baby sister, sober for the first time in 13 years, calling to tell me she just noticed our mother's eyes are green. 505 goosebumps. One day, my friend scored tickets to a Prince concert, tiny venue. I was right behind the sound booth. Prince's entire band that evening, women. At the end of the show, the sound person turned around and whispered, he didn't play one song on his set list the whole night. I live on stages. I know what it is to scratch a plan, but not the whole trip, and still arrive to your destination 200 years before your time. 421. Artists formerly known as Goosebumps. But that's just the fancy stuff. Some of them came from simple facts. It rains diamonds on Jupiter. 189 Goosebumps. Blood donors in Sweden receive a thank you message when their blood is used. 301 Nordic Goosebumps. One night in Ann Arbor, my friend, still undiagnosed, could not uncurl her fingers to strum her guitar, so she sang the chords instead. It was the first time in my life I'd seen pain become an instrument. Ten dozen Goosebumps. For each and every note plucked from the string section of her refusal to silence her dream, after that, nothing in the world was grey. Even the movie of my past was released in colour. The oldest man in my hometown could not get to the door to listen to our carols, so he went inside and sang at his bedside and said, 24 boots on the front step catching snowflakes with their tongue, 776 goosebumps. At one point, everything started doing it. A sincere apology, 221 goosebumps. An enemy's love poem, 222 goosebumps. The moon rising over the continental divide. My girlfriend and I thought it was a car driving off a cliff and suddenly nothing in the world was dying. You ever felt that? A split second when nothing in the world is dying? 888 goosebumps. And the next day, I sharpened a tiny axe so I could split the seconds myself. Too much lives in a moment to not feed it to the fire in the heart. Slow. A masula treehouse filled with candlelight, 143 Goosebumps, The Octopus Documentary, 
54 goosebumps multiplied by eight. The biggest dog in the shelter hiding behind a teacup chihuahua and the woman who came to adopt a cat taking all three of them home. 1,012 goosebumps. There is no escaping the magic now. Beauty caught me and never let me go. And the thing about the world record is, if someone breaks it after me, and they will break it after me, I will love that so much that without even trying, I'll break it again. That was acceptance speech after setting the world record in goosebumps by Andrea Gibson, read by our guest today, Katie Rickson, who is a poet, writer, editor and founder of Compassion Poetry. Welcome. <laughs> so good to have you here. Uh, thank you, Sarah, so much. So good to be here. <laughs> um, tell us about why you chose that poem. Um, oh, I just love uh, everything about Andrea Gibson's poetry, but there's just so much magic and wonder and beauty in it. And I think so often we can like just lose our childlike curiosity and we can forget that the world is extraordinary and mm. that yeah the seven wonders of the world are extraordinary but so is seeing your sister realize the color of her mum's eyes and yeah mm. it's just um I feel really moved just being able to read it out loud like mm. that mm. yeah it's I mean like I, I've I've heard the poem before and it's so nice to hear it like fresh you know and hear someone else read it and um I think it's really interesting what you said about the childlike curiosity um, because there is something a little bit like this. I don't know, we call it childlike, but it shouldn't be reserved for children, <laughs> right? Um, but calling it childlike almost sort of like attaches a, a level. There's like a shame associated mm. with like being childlike yeah. as an adult. Um yeah, I don't know how how is I'm going to jump straight into it. How yeah. has poetry helped you sort of like un unpack that for yourself? I, I'd give it. I'd like to give it an example of. Yeah, um, please do. So I went to see my counselor last Monday. Yeah. Um, and I said I've ever since I broke my foot, I've been having this feeling that that nothing is extraordinary. That there's nobody's ever done anything amazing, and the world's really kind of. Yeah. dull at the moment yeah there's something very mundane about having an injury right yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I just felt like my walls like my horizons were really small mm. um and she said uh, um I think the natives of uh in America mm. how they um if somebody's sad they they ask or oh, when when did you last dance or mm. when did you last sing and, mm. yeah mm. and there's definitely something about I guess the cultures that we live in you and I inhabit that is kind of like if you're if you're not working you aren't a good member of our society um whereas there's something like really valuable about being able to have fun mm. right yeah and that's kind of part of what seeing beauty is it's like seeing fun yeah in the world right yeah. <laughs> um and I can see why having an injury would feel like nothing's particularly fun <laughs> <laughs> but you got your cast off yeah when did you get your cast off oh it's about two or three weeks ago now mm. yeah how's it been since it's been good it's been good to be able to drive again and, <laughs> um yeah it's kind of um 
hard to be dependent on someone all the time for everything. Mm. Um, yeah, I think illness kind of does that. It forces you to ask for help and mm. and not be so proud of mm. yeah mm. which is part of what compassion poetry is about can you yeah. tell us a little bit about compassion poetry and what um maybe maybe start with like what the philosophy what the kopapa behind it is mm. yeah yeah um i i read a quote um you you may have heard of poetry happens when nothing else can Mm. Um, and it helped me make sense of my experiences. Um, I, I was diagnosed with bipolar after the birth of my daughter. Um, and it just felt like I had this whole new identity that I had to try on and make sense and kind of integrate into my world. Mm. And you, you'll get given a prognosis from the doctor and um, what you're now capable of doing and your whole world starts to revolve around tests and getting the medication right mm. and I just felt there was a real sense of me trying to reclaim myself and make sense of what my experiences mean to mm. me um, and there are common experiences that people with bipolar go through but what does it specifically mean? to me in my mm. world and how can I make something beautiful out of it mm. um there was a mantra that I had in my head when I was going through um psychosis when I was unable to sleep um something beautiful will come from this mm. and even when I was in that worst moment I I knew that I had to make something of it mm. I had to create mm. yeah yeah that connection between having hope, seeing beauty, and feeling the need to create mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So, compassion poetry is it? What? What? What is it? What? Like, if people were like, "I'm going to look up compassion poetry," <laughs> what will they find? Um, you'll find a, a collection of poems mm. and a collection of essays. Mm. Um, last year I wrote a series of essays um, called Bipolar And mm. so I looked at different parts of my experience um, bipolar and matrescence so um, what what it meant to become a mum bipolar and spirituality bipolar and work mm. um, and there was another one but it escapes me now mm. um, and I've got a couple of sympathy cards there that people can buy mm -hmm. Um I started it as a as a passion project. I, I wanted a, a platform to share my my work, mm. um, and I also wanted it to be a beautiful space. So, um, I got a beautiful designer to to create uh, the website for me. I wanted it to look and sound and feel beautiful because mm. that beauty is really kind of important to me. Mm. Um, and I wanted it to be a space where people felt safe and felt seen and heard mm. um, because I couldn't find so much writing about bipolar. Mm. Um, you tend to, I, I kind of had the sense that it was like a celebrity's kind of disease. Like mm. um, you see a lot of artists and 
musicians and celebrities, um, singers mm. that have been diagnosed with bipolar. Mm. Um, but I, I didn't see so many everyday mm. kind of mm. experiences mm. of bipolar. Mm. Um, and now that I, I feel more part of that kind of service user community, I have seen other stories and I have reached out to find other things, but, um, yeah. Mm. It's it's really interesting that you say you felt like it was a celebrity's, should we call it a celebrity's illness? Um, because much like celebrities, that's like a very superficial understanding of it. And I think quite mm. often when we're like, oh, that celebrity has bipolar, it's like, what does that actually mean? Mm. It doesn't actually give much information um and like with a lot of mental health topics so much about um the information that we get and also the care that we get is like so very like medicalized Mm -hmm. and it doesn't often um match the experience of one living with it and Mm -hmm. two um I don't want to use the word recovery necessarily Mm. but like getting to a place where where you feel safe and good and able to you know be your best self again yeah yeah yeah. and that was another reason why I created compassion poetry to kind of widen the scope of it that it's not just a medical model or Mm. a medical lens that you have to see it through Mm. Mm. um so can you if you're if you if you want to share with us a little bit more about what that diagnosis was like for you like you say it was um after the birth of your yeah your daughter um so after the birth of my daughter I went through a manic phase which went into full-blown psychosis um and I think I can't remember if it was before I went to hospital after I think it was before I went to hospital that I got diagnosed with bipolar. Mm -hmm. Um, So my baby, well, she was three months old, um, maybe even a bit younger. Mm. Um, So you're going through these huge changes. You're going through sleep deprivation. Mm. um, And and the strange thing was is that I kind of prepared myself to go through postpartum depression. I thought that was what was going to happen. But it was almost like the opposite. Like I felt so capable and so energetic. I thought, oh, I'm meant to be a mum. And um, yeah, I was I was doing things. And I was getting up at six o'clock in the morning and making a full breakfast for me and hubby, and, mm. which was totally out of the ordinary, cleaning mm. the house at three o'clock in the morning and having loads of great ideas. I felt really inspired mm. and creative. And so when I went to the doctor and she's, uh, we did a, uh, it's called an Edinburgh scale, mm. which is a questionnaire. Um, but I was thinking, I'm not, I'm not depressed. Mm. I'm not, that's not what it is. And um, the thing with mania is that you start to lose kind of insight mm. and you start to think that it's everybody else's problem. Mm. Um, yeah. So it was quite a process. I, I, went into the crisis team at my GP and then I went into respite care. And then after that, I think 
uh, that was when I was diagnosed. Um, mm. Was it challenging to get the support that you needed through? Because I, I imagine the first doctor you saw was your GP. Um, yeah, that was the other thing. I didn't have a um, solid GP at that time. Yeah. So I'd recommend to anybody that's pregnant to make sure that they've got a, a GP relationship yeah. before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I saw a couple of different people and um, I guess I didn't get immediate rapport with them. Mm. Um, I thought that when the doctors brought it up that they were they were blowing it out of proportion and I didn't really answer your question. No, 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 you did. You did because I asked if you felt like you could get the support that you needed and you said that the initial relationship with the GPs weren't, it wasn't really, the relationship wasn't really there and that initial step might have been sort of quite challenging for mm. you because like you didn't necessarily trust them as much as you could have mm. and they probably didn't really know how to communicate yeah. with you properly mm. yet either because that relationship wasn't there. Yeah. Um, I ask just because I haven't really talked about this much before, but um, I've experienced like hypomanic episodes mm. and my GP just had no idea how to deal with mm. it. She was like, I like, I don't really know what support we can give you. Like, mm. yeah, here's some brochures. And I was like, yeah, cool. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah. So it sounds like you managed to access more support afterwards yeah though, like once I think once I saw the crisis team yeah it's kind of it's strange to say but because I was so bad mm. I was able to get the support mm. and I felt like why do you have to cross such a threshold to be able to get the mm. support you need mm. Mm. um and then the first year after Zoe was born um I was there was quite a lot of wraparound support I was mm. able to access a lot of different services mm. um, but yeah it's it's funny when you're so vulnerable after giving birth mm. um, you shouldn't have to push and advocate for mm. yourself so much yeah. yeah had you been I mean you were a writer you're, you're a writer by trade mm. um, you're you're trained in in I'm gonna say writing I mean you did drama and what was your other yeah so it's called writing studies yeah writing studies yeah. <laughs> great um but was poetry always one type of writing that you accessed mm. yeah is that always something you've done I've always loved writing poetry um I've always just liked the kind of immediacy of it mm. and and feeling like doesn't have to be long <laughs> mm. um and it's always come to me in periods of of distress and being able to um just formulate your thoughts really quickly mm. um I've always liked um rhymes because I like the kind of structure of them I, I like the kind of safety thing and yeah um I listen to lots of lullabies and um i i like the security of them and the certainty of them mm. yeah i think the fact that we have lullabies in like nursery rhymes for children really speaks to the fact that like liking 
rhyme and liking language patterns is mm. like inherent to the way that we yeah. communicate with each other and also soothe ourselves mm. as well. Like that's not just something that you enjoy, but everybody enjoys that to some extent. Mm. Um, that That's really interesting. <laughs> Do you use a lot of sound play in your in your writing like do you use a lot of rhyme and yeah that kind of thing I enjoy yeah. rhyme and I enjoy alliteration and mm. yeah mm. the kind of surprise of sounds as well mm. Mm. it's interesting that you um say that there's a real immediacy about that because I'd say that when I write I usually write even though I'm a spoken word poet I usually write visually in the first instance mm. like I think more about images first mm. and then I come back and think about okay how can I make this sound good um do you find that when you write that sort of immediacy that's granted to you through through writing your ideas down in a poem comes initially through things like rhyme like once you start a rhyme you can kind of get into that like flow mm. if that makes sense yeah, I, I I like the scaffolding mm. of rhyme and the challenge of of rhyme. Because mm. um, it is it is kind of like a challenge, but that's like a motivator yeah. as well, right? You're like, this line needs to sound this way, yeah. so I need to find something to yeah. fill it. Yeah, yeah. I, one of the things that we did in writing studies at uni was having these um, prompts and these limits. So um, having to write it in a certain form or a certain way. And mm. I really liked how that kind of made me feel more creative rather than mm. less so. I didn't feel like it was a restrictive mm. thing. It was because um, if somebody just throws it out there, write a poem mm. <laughs> and you kind of get stuck because there's so many different avenues that you can go mm. down, but learning to write in different forms. Mm. Um, trying to remember what the name of one of the forms was it binge was s i think um uh, so many poetry yeah. forms i'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> also like poetry form even though i'm an english teacher poetry form is like not my forte <laughs> i feel like quite often when i write i'm just like i just go for it yeah um, think about a form later but yeah. i totally i totally recognize that whole idea of form um and restriction growing creativity rather than restricting it. Because um, I find the same with students, obviously. Yeah. Like, put a blank page in front of a student and they won't write anything yeah. most of the time. They'll just be like, oh, God, I don't know yeah. what to do. Like, sort of tyranny of choice sort of thing. Yeah. Like, I could do anything, so I won't do won't do anything at all. Mm. Um, and once you're like, this is the structure, it just blossoms mm -hmm. out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I also find it quite therapeutic. Like if I've got a challenge in in my life, um, often I'll write a poem and then I'll find the answer in the poem. Mm, yeah. Nice. Yeah. And as you said earlier, obviously there's a connection between that and your bipolar diagnosis that you lent on poetry mm. as a way to find beauty and compassion yeah. for yourself during that time yeah. um what was writing like for you in in that time after your daughter was born yeah so um 
there's a, a symptom or an experience called hypergraphia mm. and that's um it can either manifest in a compulsion to write or compulsion to draw and i just i had to take paper with me everywhere i went um i um even remember writing in the bath at the psych ward of the hospital and um it was always handwritten always handwritten Mm. yeah and looking back my handwriting was really kind of messy Mm. it was frantic Mm. um and it was a way of kind of grounding me and and saying well I'm still I'm still here and um I remember one time at the respite facility and a psychiatrist came and talked to me but I had my pen and paper there and she asked me oh can you answer me without referring to that and in a way I felt in hindsight I feel like that was a little bit cruel because that was that was my safety net Mm. at that time Mm. yeah and how, how did you feel in the moment when she asked you for that? Um, I could understand where it was coming from because mm. I used to write like plays and I would want to perform it to them. <laughs> <laughs> or I'd write something and I'd be like, oh, this is what I've written. And mm. um, yeah, it was. But it's like, don't take this away from me. Everything mm. else has been taken away from me. Mm. Um, mm. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, in a way, that need to create, again, is like this innate way of humans just generally being like, I am here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's literally what creation is yeah. um, for us. It's just us being like, yo, I exist. Yeah. <laughs> and if we like look like anthropologically back at like human civilizations that's what it sort of boils down to mm. we're like oh they were there yeah. <laughs> yeah. um and so in a time of distress having stress oh my gosh Oh, that really shocked me. Whenever he says something, I'm just like, oh, yeah, it just scares the living bejesus out of me. Came out so loud as well. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, men tend to do that. Um, uh, In in a time of distress, um, leaning back to that innate human need to remind the world remind yourself like I am here seems like it 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 doesn't like it makes complete sense to me Mm. you know um yeah so I feel like I I feel like for me as an English teacher that sort of um I guess validates what I think that providing people with the tools to be able to express themselves creatively mm. in the classroom is like, in a way, helping them survive, yeah. you know? Yeah. I was going to ask a question about, um, yeah, what your creative practice is like now as well. Because, I mean, 
like you're not sitting here with a pen and paper. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I don't know if I have a creative practice. I'm quite, I, I write, I tend to write when I'm feeling something really uh, strongly. I uh, love that. Yeah. That's what I'm like as well. And like, shout out Dominic Howie. Yes. Like, I really appreciate him as a poet. And he's always like, you need to write every day, 30 minutes every day. And I really, I really tried. I really tried. But what feels right for me is to write when something comes to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what's that, what's that experience like for you yeah. when, when you're like, I need to write now? Mm. <laughs> it's just that compulsion. Like, um, I write quite a lot on my phone now. Mm. Um notes app for me yeah yeah <laughs> <I'm a> notes <laughs> app poet <laughs> um like if i end up take my phone in the bath write in the bath or um i think i wrote my latest poem like straight after seeing my counselor i just got it out on my phone and it comes quite quickly um i don't i tend to not edit my poems too much like i like the kind of immediate mm. um yeah i've they, they teach the same thing at uni, right? Like, write every day. <laughs> mm. um, and it's a great discipline, but I, I don't know. I wouldn't call myself like a disciplined mm. poet. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because you clearly have a lot of discipline in other aspects yeah. of your life because you are self-employed. You're, you're a freelance editor, right? And, and you run your days the way that you want to which yeah. requires a huge amount of yeah. discipline um I could probably talk to my process through that if yeah. that helps like, yeah um I tend to spend takes me a while to wake up <laughs> mm. um so I found that my kind of golden time is between nine thirty and one thirty. Mm. um and I like to do a lot of journaling before that um and so um yeah, I find I need to put music on that's non, non, uh, just instrumental. Yeah, mm. um, and set a timer, and um, just write and try not to edit as I write. Get mm. it all out and then go back and and edit it and and tweak it. And um, I realised that I'm not fantastic at. Uh, editing my own work um especially um with the copywriting so i've got um i've got a subcontractor and she she's great at all the other things like i can notice um mistakes in other people's <laughs> work mm. and and ways to kind of refine and enhance it but um that sped up my writing process so much when i realized i don't have to pick up all the grammar stuff mm. um because yeah, grammar is still something that I find quite I find quite hard. Mm. Um, but realizing that you could still be a good writer and and not be amazing at grammar. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think it's interesting because you're like, oh, I, I subcontract that, and like hundred percent, that's what you do. But like, that's collaboration. Yeah, yeah, is. yeah. And I think there's this view and I'm fully guilty of it because I think I'm like this myself as a poet that poetry is like a solitary activity mm. but there is like a real beauty with 
giving your work to someone else yeah. and being like fresh eyes yeah show me what you got yeah <laughs> it's so good to be able to workshop different pieces and mm. yeah yeah 100 percent. do you have other poets who you do share your work with or is it more of like a thing for yourself at the moment no I don't but that's a good idea <laughs> mm, mm. yeah um I mean that's the thing like I I know it's a good idea and <laughs> I I know that I should share my poetry with more people but yeah I just don't usually my poetry is not shared until it mm. either goes online yeah. or I read it in front of people yeah um I used to have a friend with whom I share a birthday shout out Rex um <laughs> who I, I shared my poetry with, but he moved to Japan and things got a lot more challenging in that way. <laughs> um, but yeah, most of the time I just I just write for myself mm. and it doesn't really get shared until then. Um, how does it feel for you to share your poetry publicly, either mm. online or, I mean, have you ever read your poetry in a live space before? I No, I don't think so. No. Yeah. <laughs> so how does it feel like putting it online because you started compassion poetry yeah. as a space to share your work online yeah. how does how does that feel yeah I think what you said before about writing for yourself and I that's what I used to do it was mm. writing for me mm. and it it wasn't to be critiqued as a piece of art or it was it was a way of making sense of things so mm. um, a therapeutic tool yeah, yeah definitely um so yeah I did feel very vulnerable initially about um, putting them up online, mm. um, but I, I go back to, well, that's what I needed to hear at that time, mm. to find other people who had similar experiences. So, if that's if my poetry can reach, it's one person that's going through it, then, mm. yeah, mm. Mm. it also it almost kind of like becomes an act of service to mm. other people to like provide um, a kind of support in a way mm. yeah um and also encourages other people to use that tool that therapeutic tool for themselves as well like when you see someone's writing about a experience that y you have experienced as well you realize like oh like I can mm. write about that yeah. like that's allowed <laughs> yeah. um which is extremely valuable um yeah I find it I find it interesting that sort of push and pull between writing for yourself and writing in in a way in like service of others mm. I think quite quite often especially with social media for me I can kind of lose sight of the fact that there's value in my work outside of just entertainment mm -hmm. because like mm. I, I don't necessarily have as much of a clear kopapa in my writing, like with compassion poetry, like there's quite a clear philosophy and like what people can get from that. And when I'm putting my work out there, I'm kind of just like, what are people getting from this? But just the idea that other people can feel comforted mm. by the fact that I'm sharing an experience yeah. Is, yeah. is definitely something in itself. Yeah. And I don't want the kopapa of compassion poetry to restrict me in in that sense as well like I do I've often thought about okay so once I feel like I've got my bipolar under control what do I have to offer like do mm -hmm. I have to be in the middle of the storm for my story to 
to matter or can I live a mm. stable life and still write? Mm. Such oh, such an important question. Mm. That sort of like do you that that old like do you have to be suffering to make good art mm. kind of thing, which I like firmly do not believe. <laughs> <laughs> um but it definitely changes both why you're writing and how you're writing, mm. right? Um, I was actually going to ask about, um, this is a bit of a topic jump, but um, I was going to ask about the way that your faith, because you're Christian, mm. um, the way that your faith interacts with both your work, your poetry, and also your experience with bipolar as well because mm. mm. I feel like those three things are yeah. like potentially a little bit of a triangle yeah. for you <laughs> I, I just realized that I, I missed when you asked me about if I have have I performed any of my poetry yes. I've performed at church oh yeah. wow <laughs> can I ask what church you attend um so at the time it was uh North Coat Baptist mm-hmm. um but I've performed one at River Valley which is my current church okay in Paragai. yeah yeah nice um so yeah, it's a it's an interesting kind of place to be in. Like, I feel like like church has asked me to write a couple of poems. So I've I wrote a poem about unity and another about self worth, and mm. um, it's quite interesting to be to write based on a topic that they they give me. Mm. Um, I do feel like I. Rightly or wrongly, I censor some of the things that I want to say as well. Mm. Um, but at the same time, um, I have such a strong conviction to write about my experiences. Mm. And I believe that comes from my faith and my spirituality. Mm. I believe that it, it's part of my contribution. Mm. Um, and to be able to talk about mental illness at church, I think is really important mm, um, mm. because I think there's still a belief that if you're Christian, you shouldn't really be feeling depression or anxiety mm. or definitely not bipolar and mm. like um, you should be able to pray it away. <laughs> mm. um, but it was my bipolar had very, um, when I've had like episodes, they've had really strong spiritual elements mm. to them. Um, one time I, when I was really depressed, I thought like I was taken over by the devil. And then another time um, after um, the birth of my daughter, um, I felt like I was really close to God and he was calling me to change the world. Mm. <laughs> and um, both of them are quite uncomfortable positions to be in. Mm. Um, and I wrote about how now that it's kind of, it was like a sandpaper kind of rubbing away at my spirituality because I got knocked about so much and and there was also a time when I felt like God had just abandoned me like why was he putting me through that mm. but at the same time it was my church community that really helped pull me through and mm. um and they saw it as a unwellness they didn't see it as like a um spiritual attack but Mm. and I think that's really important to make that distinction because um when I wrote 
that essay about spirituality. I did some research about how some churches are trying to do exorcisms on children and stuff and how dangerous and harmful that is. So mm. it's um, it, at the time it felt very spiritual. Mm. Um, but it's important that the people around you see it as a unwellness. But at the same time, it, again, not looking at it completely from a medical lens and and hearing this that it is a spiritual experience for some some people mm. um, yeah I guess there's like regardless of if someone is religious or not mm. or has like a defined faith there's always a connection between mental wellness and spiritual wellness mm. as well mm. like those those two things what however spiritual wellness is defined for mm. someone um those two things interplay and so if you are feeling mentally unwell your spiritual wellness is going to be affected in some way mm. and having a bolstered spiritual wellness through for example with you with your church community it's going to support your mental mm wellness is, yeah. as well mm. um yeah yeah I think the I think the interplay between those things are really interesting because I think for me also poetry is because I don't have a defined faith because I don't because I'm not religious there's an element of like spirituality for me with my poetry mm. because I feel like like you said like it gives some sort of purpose it's a it is some kind of like giving back. It's interacting with the universe yeah. kind of thing, you know. Um, it connects me. Mm. Um, and I feel like it's it's something that it's something that supports me as well, S- like spiritually and then mentally as well. Yeah. Um, I, I think poetry has also sort of opened my... I guess exploration of what spirituality mm. means. I think for a long time, like being a queer woman from a Christian background, mm. my like through most of my twenties, I was just like, I'm not spiritual <laughs> because like I'd rejected, I'd rejected the church so hectically, mm. and it wasn't until I started exploring things creatively that I was like, oh, maybe there is like a part of me which can access a spirituality that's mine, that's that's safe for me, that gives something, that does something positive for me mm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Do you explore your, I mean, apart from poems that are specifically for a church space, do you explore your spirituality in your poetry? Uh, I think when I write poems about, like we were talking earlier about what's the point, mm. I think, yeah, I sometimes use it to kind of pull me back from the the brink. I, d- I mm. don't specifically, um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> mm, mm, um, maybe not in a like religious sense but more of that kind of like what's the point which is sort of the crux of like I don't know 
I'm not an expert in this, but for me at least, like that's kind of like the question that sparks spirituality of like, mm. what is the point? <laughs> <laughs> right? Like it's it's the is the connection that you have to to everything. Yeah. 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 I was going to ask you about um performance because because we mentioned your performance at the church. I find it really interesting that you've had limited experience performing your poetry because like from how you read that poem before, like great speaker. Um and also you have a theater background um and currently also engage with theater activities um outside of your work. Um w- would you ever want to perform your poetry in a in a live space? Yeah. I keep on thinking of instances where I have performed my poetry live now. (laughs) Um, I guess when you asked that question, I was thinking of the kind of poetry slams that we talked about before. Competitive, yeah, yeah. um, And yeah, I I would love to give it a go. Before we went on, we were were talking about imposter syndrome and how much much do I belong to? to mm. the poetry community if mm. there is such a thing as a poetry mm. community and um I feel like I just straddle lots of different worlds but mm. I wonder how much I fully belong to any of them mm. although I think that kind of sets me up for a lot of <laughs> stress mm. um like the desire to reconcile the different parts of me Mm. but I don't know if that's if that's even achievable Mm. 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 and so I guess yeah the imposter syndrome of oh well I'm not a proper poet and um but we talked about like if you write poetry you're a poet Mm. um and I don't know what the threshold would have to be for me to feel comfortable Mm. um but also just not even just comfortable, but the threshold, what's the threshold for becoming a poet and not questioning yourself, yeah. you know? Um, because like I, I struggle to call myself a poet. I know, I know people who are literally like touring shows with yeah. poetry around the country and are still like, Oh, do I call myself a poet? It's yeah, yeah it's, it's, and you know, most of them are not men, the ones that do that. Um, and it's, yeah, it's it's such a ridiculous thing um, in a way because, like, it's it's so, it's so restrictive. Mm. Um, the, the moment, and I've, I've said this in other spaces before, but the moment when I started calling myself a poet was when someone else, a man, called me a poet in front of other people they were like this is Sarah she's a poet and I was like oh yeah I guess I am (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so like do you grapple with imposter syndrome and other because I definitely grapple with like I'm a full-time paid teacher and every day there's a moment where I'm like just wait till they find out yeah (laughs) yeah do you grapple with it with other aspects of your life? Oh, definitely. Um, I think social media has got a lot to answer for. Oh, my God, and yes. I, um, now I'm 
trying to be more active on LinkedIn as well. And mm. you just compare people that are 10 years, 15 years down the track from you. And yeah. you do yourself a huge disservice by doing that. But yeah. it's so, so I think it's so much built into human nature that you want to see where you where you are in the hierarchy of things and Mm. um yeah like I put on my LinkedIn that I'm a lived experience expert and that word expert is really strange but I've been living with bipolar for most of my adult life even though I've I've only diagnosed six years ago so Mm. I am an expert because it's been my life and um and yeah um as a copywriter there's always mu- there's always something more that you can do mm. there's al- you can always be more present and active online and um the kind of writing gigs and contracts that you get and um but i try I'm trying to be very mindful of um before moving on to my next thing acknowledging my wins like that's something that i've built into my daily practice as much as possible and mm. um I call it wins and beauties and I just oh, list it. <laughs> wins and beauties. Great. That's the one. <laughs> and yeah, just um I don't know, I struck sometimes I struggle with being present mm. and being able to look at your wins and beauties and ground yourself back in that day and, and um what did this is saying that we tend to um, overestimate what we can achieve in a day and underestimate what we can achieve in a year and if you try not to chunk your times out in days but look back on the month or the the quarter of 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 what you've kind of achieved um not saying that you have to achieve stuff to kind of mm. um but yeah I think especially being self-employed and seeing that there's there's loads of other freelance copywriters out there um how do I measure up but then um it goes back to that collaboration thing as well like I'm a collaborative person I'm not a competitive Mm. person I like to connect with other people and like to learn from people that are further on down the track Mm. from me so yeah I think the imposter syndrome's kind of always going to be there um but I don't have to listen to it Mm. heaps and I did feel nervous this morning and mm. um, I messaged some friends and, and they reminded me that, you know, when you feel nervous, it's because you care. And mm. and when I did perform, I would kind of channel those nerves into that, mm. which into is that excitement. And yeah, 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 100%. That sort of connection between nervousness and excitement. Oh, man, I really struggle with that because mm. I'd say I'm quite an anxious person and I feel quite a lot of nerves especially around things that I care about like I was nervous this morning as well I was like I barely know this Katie person I hope that she thinks that I'm like kind (laughs) and but like that's the thing like was I nervous or was I just excited because I care about this you know Mm. and um being able to let go of that feeling of like "Mm, no you're not good enough to do this thing that you care about and actually be like I clearly care about it, so it matters. Yeah, um, is incredibly, yeah, is incredibly powerful. Yeah, and as we're talking about this, it's making me think about emotional intelligence, mm. and that's one thing that I want to kind of impart to my daughter is that emotional intelligence. Like, I think growing up, especially growing up in England, you probably got quite a narrow 
view of what emotions are and certain ones are bad and you don't express them and um we got her a book written by the same uh Araha's way it's called how you feel and it's an encyclopedia of different emotions and mm. um, it's got maybe over 60 different emotions and and being able to to name it and see how it shows up in your body and I think that's a really important thing to do and mm. to be able to express and to be able to express that through poetry and mm. yeah because um it's not un, an uncommon experience as a new mum to to feel rage mm. and but you don't know how to to deal with that mm. so being able to use poetry and other forms of art to to express that and mm. yeah channel that in a different way oh my god yes a hundred percent like so much of everything you just said like I was thinking about what you were saying about people not having the the um, emotional intelligence or the literacy to talk about their emotions, I think is also so connected to this idea of like feeling like you have to achieve and everything like that. Like emotions aren't productive. Mm. <laughs> um, I mean, like they're creative, mm. but they're not like if you are a worker, yep. your emotions are not important. And so coming from a Western background makes you so yeah illiterate in yeah. in emotion yeah. and giving your daughter the tools to be able to express that um explore that express that feel it um gives her such a like wealth of tools to be able to engage with the world mm. in a new way and in ways that will support her I'm going to use survival very liberally here but like survival in 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 the world to make her feel safe as she, mm. she as she's growing up so that when she's um faced with rage that she has ways of being like I know what this is I know what it is like you know what that um what that means for me in this moment and what I can do with that as mm. well mm. um and I think especially as like rage is such a good example because like especially especially as women <laughs> Like, we don't recognize anger mm. in ourselves. Um, and when we're faced with it, we don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and that, that can become a really dangerous space for mm. us, you know. Um, so that's so cool. That's so cool that you're prioritizing that for your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, yeah, I think I think often we don't recognize the survival the the need of emotional the need for emotional intelligence for our survival yeah. essentially yeah yeah and it's it's interesting that you mentioned work and productivity and I, I worked in a corporate uh, environment and um I was going through really bad um, depression and anxiety at the time and I got I went to the bathroom and I came back and there was a note on my desk saying I oh, don't you got to be careful not to show your emotions at work and you know that sent me into even a further tailspin I was like what am I meant to do mm, like <laughs> mm, if, exactly yeah um I think it's other people's discomfort about being around those emotions too right yeah yeah other people's discomfort um and also just like in a very abstract way like the system's discomfort with it the mm. fact that like this system is built on humans mm. and that means emotions like we aren't machines mm. um 
and if you're going to hire humans you're going to have to deal with rage mm. and depression and mm. anxiety mm. and all of that stuff because yeah. that's what we are <laughs> so I'm hoping that with the way that you're guiding your daughter and developing her emotional intelligence and from what I see with young people just young people having more awareness mm. of emotions and the way that um emotional well-being contributes to better social cohesion yeah. that's going to like make a future that is more compassionate yeah. <laughs> and I think that's another part of my co-papa is um having names for experiences having words um mm. like after I'd got my head around I was diagnosed with bipolar I was like okay now I can look back all the things I saw as mistakes, all of the things I beat myself up for, mm. I tell you, oh, that was actually part of me being unwell. And um, you're same with emotions, being able to name them and say, oh, okay, I recognise you, you're, you're such and such. And um, yeah, I felt the same way when I found out the word matrescence. And mm. it's I'd not heard that before yeah, today. So it's like um, it's like adolescence. It's a process of it's the changes you go through um, after you've given birth and mm. like the hormonal and the identity shifts and mm. um, that, that it's actually a thing. Like you're not supposed to, to bounce back. <laughs> mm. um, you're, you're irrevocably changed. Mm. And yeah, I think words and, and diagnoses can actually be really helpful. Mm. But I also understand the tension of, of labeling and, um, yeah, mm. it's it's quite a, a weird it's it's kind of sort of comes back to that whole idea of like restriction and freedom, mm. where it's like labels can can have the potential to restrict it mm. to the point of like, um, not fully encapsulating experience, mm. but at the same time can create a freedom in knowing that there are bounds mm. around it as well mm. like when you put a label on something it's like it it is this thing and not this other thing yeah um it creates like boundaries around it mm. um which can give you freedom to be like oh i can experience this and it's not this other thing mm. as well um and i don't have to feel like i have to be this other thing like um can you tell me the word again matri matrescence matrescence yeah with matrescence, like giving it that label of being like, this is the experience of change that I'm going through. Mm. Um, you can give yourself the freedom to be like, I don't have to be a, you know, I don't, I don't have to be a, yeah, a worker right yeah. now because I am experiencing this thing, you know? Mm. And so it gives you that boundary to not have to be something else, which is a type of freedom in itself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I find that the same with all sorts of labels. I mean, like, even just mental health labels. Mm. It can be like, I'm experiencing this thing and I can put that label around my experiences yeah. so that I can, like, deal with those as they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess the danger of it is that you accept somebody else's definition of that label, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's That's where the true. restriction comes in. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. This is what... And this is what your life's going to be like now that you've been diagnosed with this. 
yeah thing yeah rather yeah. than actually interrogating that label for yourself and yeah yeah which is part of using words to express yourself mm. it's taking ownership of words and being mm. like what does that mean for me mm. yeah yeah which is what we do as poets <laughs> <laughs> okay i am curious if you'd like to read a poem of yours for us today this piece <laughs> um it's called expecting yeah um and it's about my experience of uh, being in a psych ward um after I was um, sectioned. Um, yeah. I walk in, expecting white walls, white coats, sterile, needles, and seclusion. But my time's pale yellow, light green. I expect to feel bored and broken, but there's dancing, gossiping, baking, and singing. Except not enough cigarette breaks, which makes people pace and yell and bash on doors. The nurses behind glass, behind computers say, not yet. No Satan or smoker, it's no fresh air for me or access to the gym. What I am is a mum though, a lactating mum though, a three month old mum though. I express my breasts into plastic containers and place in the shared freezer, labored milk carefully labeled with a date and the time. My poetry bothers me. I bring pen and paper into the blue tiled tub that sits solidly, a centre. I write myself elsewhere. The food is okay, and those that are allowed to leave return with pies and crisps. We break chocolate together and drink cups of Milo before bed. The nurse brings a guitar and some fruitcake and my meds. We repeat as required, repeat as required. My sleep is artificial and I wake up with a metallic taste in my mouth, pie and bubbly, oh so bubbly, too bubbly. My baby comes to visit me around 3pm each day. I hold her, agitated and unmaternal, won't let her latch, can't let her latch, not yet. I'm allowed to leave to attend graduation, swap sweat-soaked trackies for silky gown and pink fur-lined hood, a soul-shaking girl plucks my hair, paints my face, kisses my cheek, wishes me luck. The speecher on stage, speeches on empathy. I have to go back, so I push on the intercom and say, Damn, this is counterintuitive, but could you let me in? And when I'm allowed to leave, for good? I cry over spilt milk, a sunny day, a hot car, a decent journey. In seconds, my distracted freedom wastes those solitary hours and those labelled containers roll and roll and roll and roll and defrost. Ruined. I forgot the fucking milk.